0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, joined again by Terry Fakes and Dr. Cliff Sanders. We are bringing you the third installment of our Awakening series. And today we're talking about one of the more infamous names in American history. If you've been through a junior or senior English class in American Lit, we're talking about Jonathan Edwards. So I don't know about you guys, but my first first encounter with Jonathan Edwards was the cliche, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What about you too?
1: Mm. Yes. Uh, same for me. Yeah.
0: It's become one of those things today that when you mention Jonathan Edwards, people think of one of two things. They, they think of sinners in the hands of an angry God, fire and brimstone kind of <clears throat> preaching, or they think of the legacy of slavery. And mm-hmm. uh, neither one of those really working in Jonathan Edwards' favor. And I think because of that, in some ways, Jonathan Edwards has fallen out of fashion, And uh, there was a huge revival of interest in Jonathan Edwards in the middle of the 20th century, leading up to tons of books published, Crossway and IVP and Oxford University Press publishing dozens of books in the early 2000s. By the time I got to seminary and doctoral work, you didn't hear a word about him. And so part of our Mm -hmm. goal today, talking about him, is we're bringing this Great Awakening full circle back to... America but also I really want to raise awareness about the really really good parts of Jonathan Edwards and so let's let's kick that off by saying when did you guys come to read or get past the first stage of of hellfire and brimstone edwards and incorporate him into your own life
1: well for me uh I'm rather late to the game because I know cliff had an interest and knew quite a bit more about Edwards than I did. I'll just be honest and tell you, it wasn't until Crossway started popularizing some more of his works. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they've been out there, but uh, I picked up Heaven is a World of Love, which mm-hmm. is a Crossway republish and read it. And I thought, wow, this is this is not your stereotypical Jonathan Edwards. He, he talks in their cliff about something you talk about a lot, the phrase holy love and i thought well there's more to jonathan edwards than the stereotype but cliff i know that you have read his works long before i had so how did how did you see the other side
2: of him you know i i was a pastor and of course reading books and studying at different all the time and i saw this book religious affections and it said jonathan edwards um and i probably The initial thought was, I mean, I knew about Edwards, but it was pretty, much like Cole said, pretty narrow. You know, this preacher, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I knew he'd had some affiliation with David Brainerd. I knew some association with Yale University, uh, those kind of things. But I was really intrigued with this notion of religious affections. Um, It sounded different, maybe, than what you would normally think of him as more stern, maybe uh, rigid, but here was one who was working hard uh, to identify, to verify, if you will, uh, what it meant to have these religious affections. And then as a pastor, you know, a concern always, because people are having all kinds of experiences and things happen to them, and they think they're legitimate, Uh, I think there was some of that of of an interest to, to have some clarity.
0: I wonder if if a lot of pastors haven't come across Edwards in the same way, looking for something that they're not finding anywhere else. And then you find this deep well in mm-hmm. Edwards. Um, you know, I, I think I, I came across Edwards in a deeper way through two pastors that have been influential for me, Tim Keller and John Piper, who if you read any of their stuff, you're going to encounter Jonathan Edwards. And so they were a big pointing arrow back to him. And I was reading something talking about the resurgence of interest in Jonathan Edwards. And one of the things that they attributed to it is that in the 1930s, Martin Lloyd-Jones in Britain was reading a compendium of philosophy in the West. And one of the chapters had mentioned the greatest American philosopher, theologian named Jonathan Edwards. He'd never heard of him before. And so he asked one of his pastoral mentors, Hey, Hey, you know, I want to get some more stuff by this Jonathan Edwards. Do you know of anything? And he also hadn't heard of him. So he calls up this bookstore and asks him if they have anything by Jonathan Edwards. And they don't at the time, but they told him there's a two volume set that was printed in like the 1840s or something that uh, float around and used bookstores and to look for it. And so not long after that, he's in this bookstore in London and down on the ground under the bottom shelf, he finds two volumes of Edwards' collected works. Mm -hmm. Of course, now the collected works of Edwards are like 27 volumes. But Mm -hmm. he finds this two-volume work of Jonathan Edwards, buys it, reads it cover to cover, and he said it influenced him more than any other book that he had read during Mm -hmm. his uh, ministry. Mm -hmm. And of course, now I think Banner of Truth has reprinted these, which was spawned out of Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry. And so what these, these guys were saying is, There's a lot to the fact that a pastor who was needing something that he couldn't find, who was connecting with this person he knew nothing about, found this great treasure trove in Jonathan Edwards, and he kind of was Mm. rediscovered in Britain and in America after that. Of course, our our primary interest in him right now is, in this series, we're talking about awakening. We're talking about revival. And Jonathan Edwards, like our two previous episodes, George Whitfield and John Wesley, not only lived through and, and god worked through him to produce revival edwards maybe more than the other two was the public chronicler and defender theological defender of revival and uh of our three he's the only american the other two are british they brought revival with them <laughs> and sparked revival in america but edwards uh is wired a bit differently he's uh, he wrote a bit differently, but he rounds out this trio with several really interesting treatises on revival: what it is, how to explain it, how to defend it, what does the Bible say about it. So he's the he's the perfect third person to unite with these great preachers and travelers to talk about renewal then and renewal now.
1: I agree, and th- that idea of renewal just kind of getting into his life. Just a little bit. He lived from 1703 to 1758, and he was uh, skipping ahead a little bit. He took over his father's church, uh, I believe, in Northampton, mm-hmm. and so he uh, was preaching there. And when the First Great Awakening happens in 1740 to 1742, we see our characters coming together. George Whitfield was in America 1739 and 1740 on kind of a preaching tour. And he and Edwards met at that time, and Edwards uh, kind of stimulated this uh, revival, if you will, through his preaching in Northampton and surrounding areas. And so they sort of come together in 1740, right about the beginning of that Great Awakening.
0: Yeah, so Edwards, like you said, is is somebody who lives through a really interesting time in American history before the American Revolution. We've talked about kind of the revolution before the revolution. And uh I'll just point out a couple things about his early childhood. He's he's born like you said in 1703. He's the fifth child and only boy of 11 kids. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's got he's got 10 sisters eventually. <laughs> and He goes to Yale at age 13. And in fact, Yale, even though Edwards died as the president of what would end up being Princeton, Yale is still the place where all of his works are collected. The the, the Jonathan Edwards Center at Yale is where all of his journals, sermons, all of his uh, papers are. So he goes to Yale at 13, has some doubts, works through those, really becomes a Christian in 1721 when he's about 18, briefly takes a pastorate in New York. And pastor's there for about a year and a half, gets his master's, and then he teaches at Yale until 1726 when he joins his grandfather in Northampton. So he came from he came from great stock. He had his father was a pastor, and his mother's father, his maternal grandfather, was a pastor. And I want to go back and mention this because his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, who he takes over as an associate, and then when Stoddard dies in 17. 29, I believe, um, Mm or 1727, he takes over that church. Stoddard was, for all intents and purposes, we would view him today as kind of a mega church celebrity pastor. He was one of the most well-known pastors, civic leaders in the colonies at the time. And so Edwards is stepping into a huge mantle of leadership and respect. And in fact, as we'll talk about later, uh, Edwards ends up getting fired from this church. And part of the reason is because he takes a stand against something that his grandfather had done. So he's filling some huge shoes at a very young age, but he stays at Northampton and ministers there for 25, almost 25 years. And it's there that we start to see revival taking place. And I think when most people think about the Great Awakening, they think of some immediate short-term revival. But when you read about this period, what you see is there were miniature winds of revival taking place all over New England at this time. In Mm -hmm. fact, the first time that it really started in Jonathan Edwards' church was in 1734. He gets to his church and realizes that the major problem that they're confronting is kind of a casual social Christianity, as opposed to a vibrant, spirit-filled, true Christianity. So we're we're not the only people who have Christianity as kind of a social identity, as opposed to just a set of beliefs and, and renewal. He gets there. He's got a lot of casual, nominal Christianity, and he starts to confront this in his church. and And we talked about this in the in the uh, episode about Whitfield. This was not the heyday for Christian belief in America. This was actually a pretty spiritually cool Mm -hmm. time in in our history. And I think that's one of the reasons it's so uh, remarkably like our day today. It's coming from an era where you had spiritual giants that everybody remembered the Puritans, the pilgrims, the founders of these colonies. But this second, third, fourth generation of people didn't share the deep conviction that their parents and grandparents did. Instead, they were going through some spiritual motions. And when Edwards gets to his church, he realizes this is not a church full of Christians. This is a church full of people who know something about Christianity, who like to play Christian, but there's not a lot of renewal and regeneration that's taking place here.
2: Yeah, you know, I wonder, is we? I don't want to jump too far ahead, but you know where where are we in all that, you know, in the church in America today to say that there's a lot of nominal belief. Uh, that are we I use the word are we as courageous as Whitfield and Wesley and Edwards to confront it, uh, to say um, this is religious, this is uh, ethical in some sense or another, but to really call for there to be Um, these religious affections, these, these real, uh, walking with Christ. I, I wonder about that as I think about when we've dealt with these different uh, leaders, that there was this willingness, uh, to what, uh, one guy said a leader's job is to define reality Mm. and to define reality. Sometimes in the church today, now it's, it's, it feels uncomfortable. It feels, uh, uh, harsh or something like that, but to define reality, I think that's what these men did.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think, I think back and I, I think to myself, how hard and how much resistance must they have each met? When you go into a group of people, it would be, I think this would be even harder than growing into a community that doesn't know Christ. But to go into a church where you say people that think you know Christ, but you don't know Christ. And how, here'd be my question, Cole, what is it about Jonathan Edwards preaching that, how did he go about saying to, in effect, saying to them, you're just going through the motions of being a Christian. And, you know, we're, we're all familiar with, again, sinners in the hand of an angry God, which really made very vivid to them the stakes that were there. But what was it about his preaching that was able to get through that barrier.
0: Well, uh, Cliff, to circle back to the point that you made on his preaching, uh, one thing that's really interesting the term you used, reality. Uh, so, in the edited works of Jonathan Edwards, one of the guys that edited the volumes on his sermons is named Wilson Kimnock. And he wrote a chapter in a book called Jonathan Edwards and the American Experience called Jonathan Edwards's Pursuit of Reality. And so I think that's a great summary of what Edwards was really trying to do, is he was trying to make the truths that the scripture speaks about, the things that are actually true about the world, as real and more real than the false things that people were believing in their unbelief. And, and this is the work of preaching, as Edwards went about it, is to convince people of true reality. In fact, his whole life, I think, was devoted to this aim of understanding the true reality of God, of knowledge, of scripture, of the world. He had this highly integrated view of everything that God had made pointing to God. In fact, to, to the point that sometimes he gets a little, what we would consider maybe a, a little crazy with this, he looks at things like seeds being planted and, and the seasons pointing to different spiritual realities you know the reason that we have spring is like in the parable of the sower where the seed goes out and it grows up but then the sun scorches it in the summer and every time we have spring we're supposed to remember that sometimes the word is implanted in the heart and it doesn't grow up to full maturity because it's scorched by the sun i don't know that that's necessarily the case but that's that's the way that edward saw everything birds trees plants All of that is supposed to point us to true reality that God, as creator, has made the world to point to him. Now, there's obviously an element of truth. It's really just a matter of specificity here because Romans 1 talks about the exact same thing. We can see the attributes of God in the things that he has made. And so, one of the great interpreters of Jonathan Edwards for our day, uh, somebody that's applied Edwards really well for our day, is Tim Keller. And in Center Church, Keller has a section on preaching for renewal where he talks about what made Edwards a great preacher. And I want to read you a couple of quotes that I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on because this captures to me the kind of preaching that will bring, bring about renewal. He says, preaching then is not simply telling people what to do. It must represent Christ in such a way that he captures the heart and imagination of more than material things. In the case of materialism, the power of money to bring security is more spiritually real to people than than the security of God's loving and wise providence. Clear preaching, then, is a means to the end of making the truth more real to the hearts of the listeners than it has been before. And uh, Keller is quoting Lloyd-Jones later in this section, who I think really nails this. He says, as preachers, we cannot forget this. We are not merely imparters of information. We should tell our people to read books for themselves and get information there. The business of preaching is to make such knowledge live. That, I think, is what Edwards and Whitfield and Wesley were, were doing. Of course, God was the one changing the human hearts, but this was the vehicle. This was the kind of preaching that brought about revival, whether it was in America or Scotland or England or Wales, wherever you found revival, you find this kind of preaching.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I love that quote, is the idea of preaching takes the knowledge and makes it live. And the idea of making the truths, uh, the spiritual truths more real than the material world and you think about that and you think well i'm really kind of daunted by that but when you start to read some of these sermons I, i i couldn't explain to you exactly how he does it but you get drawn in and you get realizing that hey this is the real reality my daily life is not as real as this it's it's almost spellbinding and i wish i had that gift but i don't think that i do but i think that's a good point and you see that in keller's preaching Keller also he that's clearly one thing he learned, and that was to make spiritual realities more real than your daily life mm-hmm.
2: yeah, i I think you know when we're talking about this approach, I, I mean I Edwards is hard to read at times because he's very uh, very careful. but I think it speaks to the point also of that our preaching can't be just behavioral or moral, or, you know, this kind of therapeutic deism, there really has to be some some heavy lifting and thinking behind it. His, his philosophical bent, I think, had a great deal to do with his ability to, and, and people don't think that, they think philosophers are just abstract and, you know, generalized, but his philosophical bent really prepared him and enabled him to speak about reality at such deep levels that was unavoidable and i think that sometimes my preaching my teaching lacks some of that thoughtful digging into the philosophical underpinnings of what uh, is being asked to be considered so i think he mm-hmm. i think he's a genius in that area
0: yeah you i know, can't remember uh, who who it was that said this about whitfield but they said something along the lines of and maybe you guys remember who who this was but They said one of these things, there was a guy that went to listen to him that wasn't a Christian and somebody asked him and they said, you know, why do you go listen to him? You don't believe him, do you? And he says, no, but he believes it. And that's what brought some of the power to Whitfield's preaching. And I think the same is true with our other two as well. You can teach and preach in a way that there's a distance between you and the things that you're talking about. Like, hey, I'm describing something to you over here versus a way of preaching that you are preaching from the lived experience of the living God. And that brings a power not just of rhetoric, it brings a power of pointing your people not just to you and not just diverting them over to something else, but really of you disappearing so that they can encounter God through your preaching. And that, that's the kind of preaching that that Edwards really aspired to do. And uh, he didn't have some of the verbal theatrics that Whitfield had or even that Wesley had I don't think he was quite as animated a person as either of those two but he was able in his preaching to come from such a, a a fiery hot experience of God in the heart through the affections that when people listened to him they were now having the spirit in them connect to the spirit through the word and they were encountering God in his preaching and I think that's something with our own different styles and ways of teaching that we all aspire to is not that, people would get done and say oh that was really a great sermon that person's really a great preacher but the real weight and magnitude of we we encountered god as we were listening to this preaching
1: you know one thing that comes into my mind and i'm not being critical of applicational preaching i do think there's a place for that but when i read the sermons of all three of these men it it really doesn't they're after something bigger Than a Bible lesson and an application for your life. Again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you get the sense that they're actually going into the heart and really want to see some kind of transformation, regeneration, rather than, quote, just an application to your life this week. And it just, for some reason, it expands my mind. When I read it, I realize your project is far bigger than giving me something to apply to my life this week. You actually want to start tinkering with my heart.
0: Cliff, I know that uh, religious affections, which for anybody who's actually read any of Edwards, that's typically the first thing that people read outside of some of his sermons is the religious affections. I know that book has meant a lot to you. And um, when, when revival starts to break out in New England and especially in Northampton after Whitfield comes through they have a mini revival in 1734 through 35 when Edwards is preaching on regeneration which is the same thing that these others were preaching on that's kind of an interesting theme in the in the awakening but after that he starts to write about what's happening in these revivals and when the big great awakening revival takes place in uh, 1740 through 1742 he makes it his work to examine what actually happens in a person when they're converted. And one of the products of that lifelong pursuit is the religious affections. Give us a sense of what Edwards is trying to do in that book and uh, what you've taken away from it.
2: Oh, wow. (laughs) That's quite a project there, Cole. You know, I, again, um, in the context of people that have a lot of religion and it's sort of cultural. What I took from the book was this attempt to try to understand what a real Christian is really like and what is happening to their affections. As Terry, you'd said their will and their inclinations. He uses that word too, is they're, they're inclined toward now. And so I took from the book, you know, as a pastor and as one trying to know how to preach to my own people, that to get past just this cognitive comprehension level to understanding how does one's heart and life change? How does one's heart and life get formed in such a way that these are legitimate religious affection and not not just feelings and not just pursuing, uh, or Edwards isn't saying, hey, you need to pursue a bunch of feelings and a bunch of religious affections. He's really saying this is what happens to the heart and the affections when one encounters the living God. And so I, I found great value in it. I found him at different times um, incisive in the sense of really making some careful distinctions. Then I I found him other times being very pastoral uh, for people who I I appreciate his real uh, section on assurance, uh, how that this religious affection thing is not feelings. It is really the will. It's the inclination of the heart. So I found the book to be terribly helpful to me as a person. And then I think it helped inform uh, some of the preaching that I wanted to do to get past if you will, I, I guess the parable of Jesus uh, talking about where where Jesus is now the treasure in the field
0: mm-hmm. that
2: that now it's not just oh yeah Jesus died on the cross for my sins but he is now the treasure of the field that my life is now so uh, desirous to to have everything uh, for him so that it it did a great. In Continuum, I, I still read it. I pick it up. I had it on my desk the other day. Uh, when you said we we're going to do this, I said, "Well, I'm already reading this some more, so I'll uh, I'll use it again."
0: That that to me is one of the huge takeaways: is that the change that happens in us is not just in our actions; it's not just in our thinking; it's at our it's at the level of our will and our desires, um, the affections, the way that Edwards defines them. They they are the center of who we are as human beings. The affections determine what we long for and what we treasure. And those are the things that that are changed when the spirit comes into our life. I, I want to come back to his writings on revival uh, and talk about renewal more broadly at the end. But I can't skip what happens later to Edwards. He's at Northampton, like we said, for about 22 years. And this big dispute, which has been boiling up for some time, erupts in 1749 when Edwards declares his position on what was called the halfway covenant now this is i don't i don't want to get too far into the weeds here but it's kind of interesting what was going on in these churches so under solomon stoddard which was jonathan edward's grandfather you had people that church attendance was mandatory in the in the colonies at this time but they had some sense that you can't make somebody believe something. You can make them attend church. You can try to build a society where people are acting in Christian ways, but they knew enough to know that you can't force somebody to believe. So church attendance was mandatory, but church membership was not. So in order to be a member, you needed to give a story of your conversion. And what basically ended up happening was you had people going to church that wanted the full benefits of being a church member, but couldn't give you a story of conversion because they weren't Christians. And what they really wanted was when they had kids, if they were attending church, they really wanted their kids to be part of the covenant. So what you had was this compromise where if you couldn't make a profession of faith, you couldn't be a member of the church. But if you were attending the church, Your child could be a member of the church. Essentially, you could have a baby dedication, and you could have the kids become members of the church, even if you weren't a member of the church. And Jonathan Edwards, probably in not the greatest way of going about this, decides to take this issue head on. And he basically announces, you cannot be a member of the church, no matter who you are, unless... and he he changes this. It's not the story of your conversion. It's can you make a profession of faith? Can you make a current profession of faith? If you can, you can be a member, and if you can't, you're out. Well, this this goes really badly for Jonathan Edwards. In fact, uh, the following year, he forces a vote, maybe a misguided attempt here, but he forces a vote and essentially the congregation votes overwhelmingly against him and they send him packing so at the time there were almost a thousand members of this church it was a very big church and or or attendees of the church and, and he only got 20 something votes to stay i mean it was really brutal and so you have maybe the greatest theologian of the americas kicked out of his church on a popular vote
1: well and after that incident Uh, He finds himself with not a lot of prospects. I was reading in his biography where he had an offer then from a church in uh, a Scottish church, but he preferred what he was used to, the Presbyterian form of polity. And he ended up in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, at a very small church. I believe there were 12 families there, but there was also an Indian school and some Native Americans nearby, and he was intrigued by the idea of doing some evangelism there. And that was in 1751. But I think uh, his pastoral work then maybe doesn't hit that high again, but his theological work does. And I think around 1754, he began writing some of the theological works for which he's best known.
2: And you know, it's what's interesting to me is that in this kind of time of being rejected, And kind of put into an area where little known, it reminds me of the Apostle Paul. Mm -hmm. You know, here is this great leader who's in jail. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you think that, you know, what a waste. No, taking that opportunity then to write the letters of the New Testament. So Edwards, in my judgment, sort of falls into that same kind of time where God may have removed him from public ministry. But brought him to that time where he could do that writing that would withstand uh, many, many years uh, for others to be able to study it. It makes me makes me wonder again, sometimes where we identify maybe a ter- probably demotion would be think in terms of that. That it mm-hmm. is really God's providence to help us accomplish something He really has for us because. I don't think anybody could doubt what his writings are there or the value of them is, is he probably could have never done it as a pastor of a church.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. No, it's almost one of those things where he's, you know, thinking about what happened and asking God, what am I going to do? I've got all this time on my hands. And God's like, exactly. You never would have been able to do this if this hadn't happened to you. And it, it, it makes it even more applicable, I think, because, There were certainly theological disagreements that they were never going to solve at the church in Northampton. But if we were to just look objectively and say the reason that Edwards was expelled from the church was his own pastoral mishandling of the situation. He was too aggressive. He was probably uh, too confident in his own abilities to persuade people. I mean, his own family members were siding against him in this controversy. So he picked a landmine, stepped on it, expected to be able to power through it and, and didn't. So you can even look at that and say this mess of his own making was what God then used to draw out of him the things that would influence hundreds of years worth of, of Christians afterwards. And that's the kind of stuff you can only see in hindsight is in the moment, it seems like a major setback. but Boy, from our perspective, I'm really glad he got expelled. It's also just a great confidence uh, for any pastor out there who
1: mm-hmm.
0: knows that some, sometimes people get pushed out of their churches for doing really disqualifying sinful things. And that's not a good comparison to what happened to Edwards. But sometimes people get pushed out of their churches for things that uh, really they should not have. And it, it is kind of comforting to know that if they fired Jonathan Edwards, nobody's really above that faith. <laughs>
1: that's a good point. Yeah, you know, that, that's true. We've seen this time and time again, and we know this in our head, but it's so hard when it hits you, that setbacks in life aren't always setbacks in life. In fact, God doesn't seem to waste anything. And so looking at this gives me confidence. I know it still hurts when it happens, but it's amazing because between 1754 and his death in 1758. I mean, he had written things before that, but that's when he wrote his treatise on original sin, his treatise on the will. I mean, he was very productive, but in a very different way during that period.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that we learned from him is he's, he's in the frontier. He's a missionary to the Indians. He's working with a very small church, and he's doing all this riding. He gets called to go and lead what will end up being Princeton. And before he can even really get settled there, he's been there a couple of months, he gets an, an inoculation that ends up killing him. So he, he dies of something that also seems like a total mishap. And yet now we see this amazing legacy at the end of his life. I think to look at Edward's life and start to draw some lessons from it as, we, as we've been doing. The, the biggest lesson to me is what Edward's can teach us about renewal and revival. He lived mm-hmm. through it. He wrote about it. He defended it from the Bible. And now we can go back and read Edward's writing and grappling through how do you know when the Holy Spirit is working? What are, what are the things that would be like Elijah building the altar and slaughtering the bull and getting everything ready, but waiting for the fire to fall from heaven. What what do you do to work towards renewal when God is the one who ultimately can bring renewal? The Spirit is the only one who can bring regeneration. We cannot do that. But what we see in Edwards is, but we can do things that work with God, in his will to bring about revival. And and I think that's the big lesson from Edwards' life is his his whole legacy is answering that question. What is renewal? How does it happen? How does God bring it about? And how can we be a part of it?
2: You know, what was fascinating to me um, recently in the Asbury revival, that what I found were friends of mine that I knew and others that were reading Edwards on revival. Uh, I mean, hundreds of years afterwards, are reading Edwards, and we're on different social media platforms, and and we're all pulling out our copy of Edwards on Revival to say, because that was the big question, what is this Asbury Revival real? People are saying yes and no, and I find uh, it uh, must be a wonderful thing uh, for Jonathan Edwards to know that Hundreds of years later, that people are still using his work on revival because it was so mm-hmm. thorough and so careful that people in 2023, because of an Asbury revival, are reading Edwards again.
1: That is amazing. That's a really good point. You know, one thing as I think about the three of these men, there's a great lesson that jumps out at me as well because uh, Whitfield is a great preacher. I think anybody would say that he's probably the most successful preacher of the three, as good as they as they all three of them were. And he was the international celebrity, again, not that he was, you know, it went to his head, but he was very, very well known. You get, uh, and then as Whitfield himself said, the legacy from John Wesley is, of course, his preaching, but also his organization that lasted long after the sermons. And then here we have Jonathan Edwards, who after he gets fired from his church, can't even find a a reasonable church to hire him. So he's not that well known. Uh, He's not, in my view, maybe not as good a preacher in some ways, as stirring a preacher as the others. And yet, here we are talking about him and his impact. And it just gives me encouragement to say, it really doesn't matter how big a church you're pastoring it doesn't even matter if you're a George Whitfield kind of preacher is God is going to use, he used these three men in individual ways to have a huge impact. And so there's not a one size fits all. Like if you want to have an impact better be a great preacher, or if you want to have an impact better be a great writer like Tim Keller. The truth is God used everybody in their circumstances.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Cliff, you're right. I think the way that uh, God used Edwards and what he was really gifted at. He wrote these three treatises that I think the Asbury revival it sparked everybody to go back and look at one of these that had had encountered them. A the Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls. They did titles a little differently than we do. Now, you just go ahead and put everything you're going to say in the title. <laughs> and uh, The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God, Some Thoughts Concerning the Present Revival of Religion in New England. These are still the mm-hmm. resources to go to, to say, is this really something that God's doing? Is this really the Holy Spirit? What should we be looking for here? What what are the false indicators versus the true indicators that yeah. God might be up to something? Yeah.
2: Well, you know, I've told you guys before, and the, I just find in Edwards, I find in Thomas Wilcox, John Bunyan, many of the pure, English Puritan writers, I just find a depth of inward religion that you just can't find everywhere. And if I could recommend anything to our viewers, for them to dig around and John Bunyan and Thomas Wilcox and Joseph Flavel, um, you know, some of these great writers that, that really did uh, re- refer to the reality of conversion, to the reality of, ch- of change, that uh, just they feed my soul. Uh, in ways, so much of other readings just uh, don't do it for me, and I'm not being negative about that. I'm just saying for me, but but this idea of reviving this idea of an inward uh, Wesley called it heart religion. Uh, others have called it uh, being uh, you know the evangelical conversion. I just find he, Edwards and others a a rich, rich resource. And
1: inspiring, you know, to me, when I read their works, it inspires me to want to be uh, a deep, more deeply in love with Christ. One of my favorite quotes from Edwards is he said, he who would set the hearts of other men on fire with the love of Christ must himself burn with love. And I find that just very inspiring on a personal level. It drives me into prayer, it drives me into the word and uh, just it's edifying to me.
0: Yeah, I would echo that for sure. And as you mentioned earlier, I wonder what Edward's legacy would be if Heaven is a World of Love was printed in American literature textbooks instead of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, although if you go back and read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it's a, it's an interesting sermon, but maybe not the most mm-hmm. characteristic of Edward's. But I'll close. If somebody is looking for a place to dive into Edward's, I would recommend his sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light. It's about Ten pages, you can find it on the Internet. Just type in a divine and supernatural light. The Yale Edwards Center has uh, the text of it on their website. But in this sermon, this is preached in 1734. So this is when the first miniature revival is going on in Northampton. And he takes the text, Matthew 16, 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And the doctrine of the sermon is there is such a thing as a spiritual and divine light immediately imparted to the soul by God of a different nature than that can be attained by any natural means. He's talking about what it means when the Holy Spirit really comes into your life, when when you repent and you surrender your life to Christ and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He says what fundamentally changes in a person is they don't just have a knowledge of God anymore. They have a real sense of God in the heart. And uh, to me, this, this, really, this, this quote sums up almost everything about Jonathan Edwards that we should be thinking about in our day, longing for renewal and revival in a, in a culture that seems like it's going the wrong direction. He says, he that is spiritually enlightened truly apprehends and sees and has a sense. He does not merely rationally believe that God is glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. There is not only a rational belief that God is holy and that holiness is a good thing, but there is a sense of the loveliness of God's holiness. There is not only a speculative judging that God is gracious, but a sense how amiable God is on account of the beauty of this divine attribute. I think that's what we need if we want renewal, not just in big numbers, but renewal in our own hearts is not just the knowledge of God, not just the fact that we've been around church, not just that we can say Christian things, but the real sense on the heart of the reality of God's glory and His holiness and His beauty and His grace. And if you have that, then you'll be able to speak and preach and lead and be a friend in such a way that you can see it happen in others.